Hi, I'm Jackie, and we're in a series called The Table. You know, the place we sit at and eat with others. You know, where we eat and when and what we eat and even who we eat with, it all says something about us, doesn't it? Well, that was also true in antiquity. And so today we're going to be talking about Jesus's time, actually meal time in Jesus's time. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Last week, I shared a little bit about my life growing up around the table. And if you listened, you know that we had a bathroom next to the kitchen. And whenever a family member went to the bathroom, they didn't close the door because they didn't want to miss what was going on in the kitchen. As I mentioned, the table reveals a whole lot about us, doesn't it? That is true now, and it was true way back when in Jesus's day. And that's why Jesus did it why he used mealtimes to challenge social and religious norms. But before we get to our mealtime story, I want to lay a bit of a groundwork for table culture in first century Israel. I'm going to do that by quoting Mark Moore's work on table fellowship. You can Google him and learn more from him if you want to. Oh, and by the way, if you end up liking this podcast, how about jumping on over to iTunes and subscribing? And send and pass this one on to a friend. This is an excellent, like, social podcast to share with friends. Maybe together you could build your table. Mark Moore, he says this, Human beings are the only animals that eat communally. We decorate our tables, call our families, present the meal with ornamental color, and use specific utensils for various elements of the meal. It looks more like a ceremony than a biological necessity, and in fact, it is. Meals are complex social events that function as tools for building community rather than simple nourishment for the individual. Put simply, meals accomplish specific things in the context of community. In the social world of Jesus's day, they had four basic functions, and here they are. Number one, to support kinship, to create solidarity, one ate with the clan, and by doing so, established the boundaries of who was in and who was out. Meals reminded the household where their loyalties lied. The concentric rings of the table fellowship were extended family, household servants or hired workers, and members of your social class, those who you would invite to special banquets. So that's number one. Number two, to enforce boundaries. Hierarchy, status, gender, especially through the seating arrangement. During these meals, the social group was reminded of who sat at the head of the table and who was at the foot, or in their case, who washed the feet. This is where women's roles were reinforced, by the way. That's number two. Three, 
to perpetuate social values. During meals, certain rituals were maintained, such as washing, prayer, symbols. In addition, special feasts, Sabbaths, fasts, these observances were celebrated, and, and in some ways, meals were quite liturgical, sometimes even mirroring the events of the temple. That's three. Four, to gain honor. Don't forget, Jesus lived in a time where the culture was honor-shame. So number four, to gain honor through hosting banquets or through clever discourse as a guest. The wealthy were allowed to show off as well as um, demonstrate benevolence to guests, and the guests were able to show deference as well as entertain their hosts with with other guests with wit and wisdom. These were the four main uh, functions of eating around a table during Jesus' time. And yet, Jesus didn't live by these rules very well. In fact, he used meals as a means of disrupting social values and overturning normal standards of behavior and honor. And see, all of this is really important for us to understand this table culture so that when we hear stories like Jesus feeding the 5,000 or his turning water into wine at the wedding at Canaan or the woman who wiped Jesus' feet at the dinner party at Simon's house— when we hear these things, even even when we think about what Jesus was signaling when he instituted the Eucharist, which was around a meal, we need to consider what was the table culture of the time. Knowing that will help bring depth to what Jesus was trying to show us in and through these stories around mealtime. And that's true of the overly familiar story of Mary and Martha. Yes, I know you'd like to turn this podcast off about now, wouldn't you? And that's because we women have heard this story taught so many times. And each time we've heard it taught, we've walked away feeling guilty. Well, let me say this. This isn't a story about our quiet time. I'm all for having one. It's just that that isn't what this story is about. In fact, in this story, Jesus used the mealtime to challenge the social and religious exclusion of women. Exclusion of women in male spaces and places. And so this is a huge, huge story for us women to know in light of this table culture of first century. So how did I get that out of this story? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Buckle your seatbelt because here we go. Let me read it to you. I know, I know. Just bear with me. I know you've heard it a million times, but I want to make sure we have it fresh in our minds as we dissect And we hear Jesus challenge male spaces and places where we see Jesus say, I actually am inviting her in. We start in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he had to say. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that she had to make. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. And Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. Remember that lady, that ladies, that last sentence, 
and it will not be taken from her. So let me ask you the question. What's the first thing we observe? The first thing we see here in the text? Oh, wait a minute. I should probably pause. I should probably tell you that when we study the Bible, we do three things. We observe, interpret, and apply. Observation is simply asking, what do I see in the text? It's like being an investigator, looking for all kinds of clues. It's really important to stop and slow our roll and observe for a while. The more you observe, the more you will see, and the better your application will be. Observation. And then we interpret, which means we look back, and we have to use a lot of resources to do this, to study history and culture and context. What, what, did, it, what did the original audience understand when they heard this read to them? That's what we want to know, right? We want to understand what meaning they drew from the particular passage. Not what meaning we draw, but what they thought. What did they think that to mean? That's interpretation. Application. That means just basically, so what? When I, what does this have to do with me today in the 21st century? So now that you know that, observation, interpretation, application, what's the first thing we observe? Well, the first thing we observe is that Jesus and his disciples are heading to Jerusalem, and along the way, they stop where Martha lives, and she invites them in for a meal. Again, remember, Having a meal with someone was like an act of friendship. It was like you were aligning yourself with this kinfolk, just like kinfolk. And this is why the religious leaders got so mad at Jesus for eating with sinners. I mean, what was he saying? Was he saying he was aligning himself with them? Well, indeed he was. What we can draw from this, just understanding table culture in first century, is that Martha must have had an intimate friendship with Jesus before this passage because she invites him in for a meal. And so many times when we think about this story, we imagine that there are three people at the meal. There's Mary, Martha, and Jesus. But is that true? What did we actually read just a minute ago? It said that Jesus and the disciples were walking along their way. So we have to ask the question, how many disciples were there? Well, how many disciples did Jesus have? Well, he had at least 12, right? 12 male disciples, but we know that there were other disciples. So we could probably guess that there was at least 12, if not more, because in Luke 8 and 10, we learned that there were a whole lot of other people traveling around with Jesus. But let's just stick with the 12 just for sakes, sake of saying so. So we have, we have Mary, we have Martha, and we have Jesus, and we have the 12 and maybe more. And then if we were to turn to John 11, 1, we would read, a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived within Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. By the way, it's interesting to me that Martha is mentioned first in Luke chapter 10, which makes me think that she probably was the oldest and possibly the owner and therefore the head of the household. And that will be important a little later on. Now, that was unusual, but not unheard of at that time either. The point is, we have at minimum Jesus, the 12, Mary, Martha, the brother Laz. That's at least 16 people. 16 people. Now, if I said to you, we're going to have a meal in America and about 16 people are coming, what kind of event, what kind of celebration would that, 
ring to you true like oh it might you might think of well that's what we do at Christmas or that's what we do at Easter or that's what we do around the Thanksgiving time right how many of you have tried to plan and cook a Thanksgiving meal I have and I gotta tell you I liked it better when my mom was the one doing it it's a ton of work now let me ask you do you think it was a planned meal Listen while I read verse 38 again. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village. And now we know from John 11 that that village is Bethany, which if you looked it up on a map or you've ever visited Israel, you would know that that's a suburb of Jerusalem. So they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed them. Is it planned? No, probably not. It says they're on their way, and on, along the way, they stop. No cell phones, no emails. I mean, they didn't call ahead and say, hey, Martha, we'll be there around four. It's probably an unplanned meal for 16 people, right? And by the way, there's no Tom Thumb. There's no Kroger. There's no stoves. There's no refrigerators. There's no running water. So what might it have been like for Martha to have to prepare this unplanned meal for 16 people? Well, she might have had to walk out back and get a chicken or two or go down to the market and buy one and then kill it and pluck it. She's going to have to build a fire outdoors. They didn't have indoor kitchens back then. And then she's going to have to get water and fill pots to be able to cook it. It's a lot of people, so maybe she has to borrow some chairs or bowls from her neighborhood. You get the picture. It's a lot of work, and I can see why she gets stressed. Heck, I'm stressed going to the grocery store wearing a mask in the middle of the pandemic, aren't you? Have you noticed, like, going to get a gallon of milk feels like entering a war zone? Like, should I touch that? Is she six feet apart? What the hell is he doing not wearing a mask? I'm just feeling all of that just getting milk. Imagine what she's experiencing. Meanwhile... Where are the guys and Mary? Well, they're in the other room, the living room. We'll call it the living room, the other room. And this is significant because in Jesus's day, there were strongly defined roles about space for women and men. There was male and female space. Public space was male space. And if a woman was in public space, unaccompanied by a man, whether that be her father, her brother, or her husband, basically it was thought that she was communicating that she was sexually immoral or promiscuous. This is one of the reasons women couldn't study underneath a rabbi because rabbis taught in public space. There's a rabbinical statement that says, rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. Whoever teaches his daughter the Torah is like one who teaches her obscenity. And where is Mary? And what is she doing? Well, she's in male space, sitting at the feet of the rabbi. In Acts 22.3, there's a reference very similar to this, a reference to the same type of posture. It's talking about the Apostle Paul when he studied underneath the greatest rabbi of his time. And it said he sat at his feet. And that's because the pos- that's the posture a disciple takes when learning from their rabbi. Except women we're not allowed to learn from a rabbi. So knowing this, she's in male space where all the men are, and she's taking the posture of a disciple, which she's not allowed to do. What do you think the other men in the room are doing? What do you think their body language 
was saying. Certainly that they were uncomfortable. Surely there was a few eyes rolling and elbows jabbing and a few clearing of throats. It would be similar to like, um, well, let's just say you invited me over to your house and I decided uh, to walk into your your house and go straight into your bedroom and sit down and have a conversation with you. You'd feel uncomfortable, wouldn't you? And that's because we also have these spaces about where it's okay to be and not okay to be and who's allowed to be there and who's not. And this is exactly what's going on in that room where Mary is. Now, what do you think they're talking about? And I'm emphasizing this because I don't want us to think that they're talking about fingernail polish or fabric for the couch. Not that those are bad conversations, by the way. But that's usually where we tend to think women, we relegate women's conversations to, you know, caring about our bodies and the household and groceries. But Jesus is there. And what did Jesus talk about the most? Come on, you probably know. Yeah, the kingdom of God. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God all the time. Surely in that room, there was conversation about the kingdom of God and about healing the blind and walking on water and feeding 5,000. And, and, and there was probably, you know, conversation about chickens and kids and that they were feeling sweaty from the day. And my point is, amongst all that normal talk, they're also talking theology and scripture and kingdom. And for far too long in our history, we women have been taught that we can't be trusted with the heavy weight of thinking about doctrine, Bible, and theology. And we may have been told that, and somewhere in us, we may even believe that, but Jesus doesn't. And how do I know? Because Mary's in the room with him, engaging in the big stuff, theology, Bible, doctrine, kingdom. What's the atmosphere like? You ever wondered? When I ask women this question, they usually have differing answers like, well, I think it's probably quiet or maybe it's reverent or loud or there's a lot of questioning going on. And I think it's probably all of these and maybe more. Jewish teaching was a bit Socratic in that it was a dialogue back and forth. So a rabbi would say something and then somebody would comment about it and then someone across the room would answer and back and forth and back and forth and it could get really loud. Whatever is going on in that room, I can assure you, assure you, it is not the 5 a.m. quiet time that you're having in your chair. I mean, actually, there's a lot of people in that room. How could it have been a quiet time? When I think about the scene, I think about this time when I was in my doctoral studies. Um, at that time, there was 26 male pastors and me. And our prof, Dr. Haddon Robinson, who is a world-renowned preacher and teacher, asked us what we thought about a particular passage. I don't even remember which passage it, it is right now, but it was about this particular passage. And everybody got really into it. We read it. We thought, you know, gave our insights, our observation, interpretation, application. I think it's this. And somebody else would say, well, how about that? And no, but you forgot to consider this. And it was this exciting and intense conversation. And then Haddon Robinson started to share his insights. And as he did, the room got really quiet. And I started to watch the men in the room. I mean, they slowly stopped typing notes on their computers. They, they would lean in with their body, and the room became very quiet. And I suspect it was much like that in that room where Mary sat at the feet of Jesus with the male disciples. Excitement, intense, and then sudden holiness. 
Mary's at Jesus' feet, learning theology, Bible, kingdom. She's where she shouldn't be. And then in verse 40, we read, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister should just sit here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. Now, isn't it interesting? She's actually upset with her sister, but she addresses Jesus. Why does she do that? I think it's because Jesus is the authority in the room right now. But I do know, regardless of why she turns to Jesus, that in that room right now, it's really tense. Have you ever gone to a couple's house for dinner, and when you get there, they open the door, and you can tell they've just had a huge argument? The air is thick as, an, as thick, as thick, and you could cut it with a knife? Yeah, I think that's what's happening in that room with Mary right now. Now, I think that Martha was frustrated because of the, she had so much work to do. It's a lot to put on an unexpected meal for 16 people, especially when you have to kill, pluck, pile wood, and burn. I get it. But I don't think that's the only reason Martha's upset. Remember I said that most likely Martha is the head of the home, which means she's responsible for what goes on there. And remember I said that in Israel at this time, this is a culture of honor and shame. Okay, hold on to that. I've been to Israel and seen the archaeological digs of the homes that would be typical at that time in Jesus's day. And they're like these square-like structures, and they have windows without glass or shutters, by the way. And these houses are built very close to each other, like tiny little alleyways that you walk between. And it wasn't unusual at that time that when someone showed up to the village, all the villagers would hear the news that somebody had arrived, and they would pop their heads into the windows to partake. I've experienced this in Africa. I remember when I was in Africa in South Sudan and I was preaching at a church and I'm just getting ready to stand up and all of these kids and adults pop their heads in the, into the windows. There's no, there's no glass, there's no shutters, there's no curtains, just open space. This is what the people around town are doing. And they are seeing that Mary is in male space taking the posture of a male disciple. Now remember, this is an honor-shame culture. So that's a big deal. I think Martha is frustrated that Jesus isn't doing anything about that. And so, yes, come help me. But I think she's also pointing out what's happening in the room and saying, Jesus, do something. And what's fascinating is his response. And when I hear Jesus give Martha this response, it's not a response of scolding. I hope you don't hear any scolding in his voice because actually it's very, very tender. It's almost like an invitation for her also to partake. He says, Martha, Martha, you're distracted by many things. Let me pause for a moment. Notice he didn't say, Martha, you're wrong for serving so much. What's interesting here is that if Martha was friends with Jesus, which she obviously was, they had a very intimate friendship, if he came through town and she did not invite him in for a meal, this would have been like a slap to, his, to him, and, and so an insult. So, of course, Martha has him in. But I think what he's saying here is, Martha, you've prepared so many dishes, like you've gone over the top. If you had just done a few dishes, we would have food, uh, food, we would have been fine. And then in between serving, you could have also come in and sit at my feet and learned. I think he's offering Martha the very same thing that he's offered to Mary. 
the very thing he's offering to you and me too. He says, Martha, you are distracted by many things. One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen it, and it won't be taken from her. We have to ask the question, what's the one thing? What's the one thing that's needed that won't be taken from Mary? Is it her quiet time at 5 o'clock in the morning? I don't think so. It's that Mary is willing to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. Even crossing cultural boundaries or socially accepted mores, she is willing to do what a woman isn't supposed to or allowed to do. She'll do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. This is interesting, right? Jesus uses this time around meals to flip society, to say to those who are excluded, no, no, you're included too. Yes, even into that space even into that place. And we need to hear that. But we also need to ask ourselves, are we willing to push through the obstacles thrown at us? Cultural boundaries, social norms, traditions that are set by our families, churches, political parties, corporate life. Are we willing to follow Jesus, even if it means others will feel uncomfortable with our presence being there? Even if others raise their eyebrows or elbow us or voice their disapproval, it's hard, isn't it? I know. I encounter that frequently. And I I have to be honest, I don't want others' opinions to be bad of me. I don't want them to think bad of me. And then I have to think, excuse me, and then I have to think to myself, if I'm not careful, I'm going to let their opinions send me back into the kitchen metaphorically speaking. And that's what I have to remember. Jesus. Jesus invites me into the living room. And you know what, ladies? He invites you there too. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese. R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.